welcome to Taj Tellum. Uh, as part of our ongoing series on the Democratic candidates for 2020, uh, we're about to cover uh, Congresswoman uh, Tulsi Gabbard. Uh, we'll be talking about issues like her foreign policy um, and also her the media treatment of uh, of Tulsi Gabbard's campaign, including Pimplegate. Oh. <laughs> Welcome to Taj Tellum. I'm uh, Jack, and I'm here with my buddy Terrence. Hey, what's going on? Um, yeah, so Jack, what are we covering today? Uh, so we always we wanted to cover uh, a candidate every episode, and just kind of dig into uh, a di- deep dive, uh, deep dive into the candidacy, the candidate her, him or herself. Uh, and this week, uh, we're looking at Tulsi Gabbard. Oh, okay. Or Gabby Tulser. <laughs> but, you know, I want to first say, hey, check out our new digs. You know, we're oh, renting yeah. from a different space. Uh, it's a little more homey in here. Like, we got a couch. Uh, so, you know, but we'll be back to our old space soon. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. I think we should do this every once in a while. Yeah, you know, mix this it is, up. Mix yeah. it up. You know, new set. Um, I, was, I was getting tired of the old place. <laughs> After only one episode. Exactly. Um, <laughs> And so, yeah, so what, uh, how'd you first hear about Tulsi Gabbard? Uh, actually, uh, I've, al- I've always heard, saw clips of her come up just because my YouTube, the algo is set up to look at a lot of political candidates uh, in politics in general. And Tulsi would come up, uh, against, uh, against the war. And I see that I, I kind of knew that was her thing. So that's where I first got introduced to her. But, uh, again, didn't really look into her until Joe Rogan's podcast. Hmm. Yeah. So that was my first uh, time listening to her. Uh, and she just comes off a genuine person um, who, tr- at, af- as far as I can tell, uh, who really believes what she says, hmm. um, who genuinely cares uh, about her policy and uh, not just trying to pander to different votes, um, you know, uh, and speaking Spanish, <laughs> you know, she just pretty much has one message. Uh, it's very easy to follow, but very hard to explain in detail, I, I would say. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I think uh, I agree with you there. I think um, two things that strike out, uh, strike out to me about uh, Tulsi Gabbard is uh, her authenticity, uh, as well as, uh, you know, her uh, stance against uh, these regime change wars. Um, it was interesting, you know, I've been talking to a few people about her, uh, and I think one element of her personality comes up is that she's kind of robotic, you know, um, many people say that she's cold and lacking in charisma, that she's not particularly, uh, spontaneous. Um, and I think that quality comes, uh, from, she is a self-described introvert. And so, you know, politics more of an extrovert's game. So I think she... As a fellow introvert, I can understand how it's sometimes difficult, you know, to express yourself uh, and in that remote quality of because whenever you're thinking about saying something, uh, you know, you think about it before you say it. And so it can it can lead to a more remote or like aloof kind of quality. Uh, but I don't think that's necessarily dig against her authenticity. Um, and I think uh, when I see it, it's also I, I would say it comes from her military background as well. Mm. She's talked very poised, very clear, very concise talking method no that's true i mean i uh in the research i i uh came across a small anecdote where i think she has a older sister 
And growing up, whenever they would visit like a store, uh, Tulsi would always have her older sister dress like the cashier and things like that because she, you know, she was a very shy girl. Um, mm -hmm. I think part of that also had to do with the fact that she was actually a uh, homeschooled. Mm -hmm. um, and I think uh, for uh, religious reasons, I think, um, you know, one of the things that keeps coming up, uh, you know, in my research on Tulsi Gabbard is uh, her faith that she uh, comes from a, a Hindu background. Um, She's mixed, right? Oh, yeah, She's so, in half Indian, half Samoan. Uh, oh no, I think her her dad, her I think her mom. Uh, ooh, I forget. I think it's either her mom who's part Indian, and then her dad I think is maybe German or some kind of European ancestry. Okay. Uh, but I know one uh one side of her family is uh Catholic, and the other side is Hindu. Hindu, um. And I think she gets, she's been getting a lot of bad press uh, about um, her uh, Hindu background because it comes from uh, kind of a, uh, a sect of the Hare Krishnas uh, led by this guy like Chris Butler. I don't know if you if you heard much about him. Um, and he's kind of an interesting character. He was like a college dropout. <laughs> um, you know, he's from Hawaii. Uh, he embraced a lot of, you know, uh, the Hare Krishna's ideas of like environmentalism and things like that. Uh, but he gets a lot of bad press for, uh, for two reasons. One, uh, he kind of had, um, you know, uh, anti... Oh, no, no, keep going. Oh, 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 one is that he was kind of like... Uh, he exhibited symptoms of like a cult leader. Yeah, that's what I was saying. Mm -hmm. It's cultish, right? Yeah, like yeah, it was, yeah. uh, Okay, there's like a financial incentive with that? Uh, I didn't really see much... Uh, information about his finances but you know like kind of weird cult of personality stuff like people would apparent i guess you know there's reports of people putting his toenails in their food which is kind of delicious strange. um or like eating sand that he had walked on or things mm -hmm. like that uh and also you know he was a uh, he was or maybe still is he's still alive uh but he, uh, a hypochondriac like he would quarantine apparently reports say he would quarantine uh, members of his religious organizations who had traveled abroad uh, because he didn't want to get any kind of uh, illnesses. Uh, and he had a bit of uh, that tinfoil hat stuff where he wanted the houses that he would stay in to have like some kind of aluminum foil to block electromagnetic waves. And so, you know, he had some kind of zany ideas. Um, but I think, you know, where... Uh, oh, oh, and I would say the second thing that uh, Chris Butler gets a lot of bad press about is his um, you know, homophobic kind of uh, beliefs and stances. Okay. Um, and I think, you know, none of those things I just mentioned are good things, you know, but, um, I don't think they're unique to, uh, Tolthe Gabbard's faith, uh, tradition, you know, because if you say you look at, unfortunately, and actually, you know, some things are kind of funny, like the Lincolns, mm -hmm. Abraham Lincoln and mm -hmm. his wife were actually known to hold seances. <laughs> oh, and, yeah. From, from the wife, I remember. Mm -hmm. And then the Reagans actually consulted, uh, astrologists. So oh. I think, you know, spiritual experimentation is just part of the American tradition. You know, uh, so I think it's unfair to, you know, to, to call out, you know, Tulsi on this, you know, plus even like, you know, most um, our presidents came from like a Christian background. Right. But, you know, there are many, you know, like Christian like ministers who are, are saying and doing very zany stuff, you know, like uh, Jerry Falwell who was the evangelical Christian who co-founded co the moral majority. I mean, he would say like bizarre stuff like AIDS is not, uh, AIDS is God's punishment for homosexuals or, you know, he believed that the pagans and the abortionists and the feminists and the gays were uh, responsible for, uh, you know, 9-11 and things like that. So, I mean, 
you know, I think that, you know, zany, <laughs> zany religious folk are not necessarily uh, unique to Tulsi Gabbard's faith tradition. And, you know, and, and so I think it's a very unfair criticism uh, for people to uh, kind of attack her in that way. And that's where I, I support like her, um, you know, uh, pushback that, you know, that, that's essentially uh, religious bigotry. You know, because I think, you know, the, the Hindu tradition has some pretty interesting ideas in it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, one, because uh, I've been going and getting into meditation. And so uh, I've been kind of exposed to, you know, some of their frameworks. Uh, one I've heard that's interesting is the framework of like the chakras. Mm-hmm. Um, so on like the first level, it's one of like sur- sur- survival, like my own survival. Uh, the next is uh, desire to reproduce, like sex. Um, the third is for power. So it's the idea to protect myself and my progeny. And, and the fourth is love. You know, once I'm secure, then I'm able to kind of love others. And that maps nicely over, um, you know, the Maslow's hierarchy of needs uh, that we embrace in the West. And so, and I also think that's a helpful uh, framework for a politician to operate out of because it's something like, I mean, Andrew Yang spoke about this in the debates. Before we can even worry about climate change, you got to get the boot off our throats. You know, if American people are just worrying how to pay their bills, uh, they can't worry about these more high-minded ideals about, you know, the collective They won't care good. about the polar bears. Exactly. You know, it's not to say that, you know, we shouldn't care about it, but like it's just a matter of like priority. Uh-huh. And so that's where I think someone coming from the Hindu, you know, faith tradition, you know, perhaps understands that, you know, uh, you know, uh, from a philosophical level. And if anything, that that's maybe a good thing, you know, for a politician to have. Um, and so I think that's where um, I feel like the media's coverage of Tulsi is very, uh, you know, biased. Um and I'm kind of curious, what are your thoughts about, you know, the media's coverage of Tulsi? Um, well, it's interesting uh, because there's a lot of places where they mention Tulsi and they brand her as her on her conservative views hmm. on uh, foreign policy. I see. Well, what makes her views conservative? That's the question. Because they would always just brand it as conservative views, but then they don't explain further. Mm. Uh, like there was an, arpus, uh, uh, an article on, um, uh, I think, MSNBC talking about how during the debates, you know, Tulsi Gabbard didn't get a lot of time because of her conservative views. Mm. And it was just like, wait, when did, when did uh, uh, opposing the war become a conservative view? Uh, I see. So that's what they're referring to as conservative views. Mm-hmm. Which just meant that it didn't jive with the de- democratic platform of we should be the policemen of the world. Well, that's very strange. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I normally thought that uh, Democrats or liberals are associated with uh, peace versus war. Uh, well, it depends on where you're looking at. I guess the, that's you're, you're kind of right, but uh, the view. Mm. That's always been a very, very... Uh, 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 more liberal kind of a, a show, uh, and they talked about that. They they oppose. They were they were coming at her for meeting with Assad, mm. and you know the Assad regime was uh, you know using chemical weapons on their own people. Um, and I think you know, the Democratic Party would say, yeah, how, how come we didn't do anything there, or how come we didn't do anything in Ukraine? Uh, I see. Yeah, you know what it is, is I think this idea of um, American hegemony, it crosses both, uh, across political lines. It's, it's, it's a fixture of both parties, unfortunately. Yep. yep. Um, yeah, and I, and I think it's, uh, I mean, speaking about that view appearance, um, 
you know, I, I do think that it's falling, you know, I, I think, well, actually, let's back this up. So, um, you know, when it comes to foreign policy, I feel like there's a couple principles that, um, you know, that uh, we're kind of operating off of. One is uh, American hegemony uh, versus, uh, you know, collective action. So is it solely the United States' responsibility, you know, to police the world? Or should this be a collective responsibility? And I think there's a lot of lip service paid to the collective aspect of it with NATO, the UN. But if you look at reality, I mean, who, who the, these peacekeeping forces, they're comprised mostly of, you know, United States mm-hmm. uh, military. Yep. And so that's actually something that Trump uh, called that, attention and that's, to. And that's basically what Bush did. They, even with the UN opposing any military action in Iraq, we still went into Iraq. That just shows you what kind of power the UN has over anybody. Oh, but we had a coalition of allies. <laughs> exactly. I think Papua New Guinea was on the team. <laughs> Canada. Oh, yeah. You know, they're providing the maple syrup. I mean, yeah. I mean, it was just like, um, it's, it, it, yeah, it's, and that's kind of why the uh, Trump was able to hold NATO and the UN hostage. True. I mean, I don't agree with how he's approaching uh, this kind of accountability, but I do think it's it's a it's an important topic, you know, because they were under, um, you know, funding NATO, these other countries. So who picks up the tab? Us. And I think, you know, we, we're um, facing this kind of sea change right now with the rise of China uh, to say that, hey, you know what? U.S. maybe isn't going to be the only superpower. And so what's the world going to look like? You know, but I also think, too, you know, do we really want to invest in making other countries like us, you know, liberal democracies? You know, like that's a nice dream, but is that something we're willing to kind of pay the cost for? Um, yeah. Why do we want to export what we have? Ours is just like shit right now. No, I mean like that. <laughs> I mean, you know, so that's actually one of the compelling things that are happening right now where, you know, one of the reasons why China is seen as a rival is the sense that they are challenging, um, you know, the democratic model where they're propping up more authoritarian, authoritarian regimes because, uh, you know, they're saying, hey, we're more authoritarian. And, you know, I think there's that classic example of like, uh, you know, even infrastructure, you know, projects where, you know, it takes like decades for you know, us to build a bridge, whatever. But China can do it like in a matter of days. And so it's something where, you know, the efficiency in their model, uh, they're really trying to push forward uh, the benefits of it. Um, I think uh, in Taiwan, we were talking about this. We we're saying, hey, you know, in China, you you want to do something and in a week you'll get done uh, during the 2008 uh, Olympics. In 2007, China came down and said, all right, we're moving all the factories out. And so all the factories got moved out and they started shooting the cloud dispersing missiles and stuff Mm -hmm. like that. And all of a sudden in 2008, during the Olympics, it's like the sunniest, uh, no air pollution at all. Like nobody has ever seen that side of Beijing. And as soon as the Olympics were over, boom, all the manufacturing came back and nobody can see the sky anymore. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I mean, th- so I mean, there definitely are benefits to you know their way of doing things. Mm-hmm. Um, personally, I wouldn't want to live in that kind of country because uh, I, I think that amount of control, control from the state is dangerous. And that's um, the whole point. That's what America was founded on. True is the checks and balances. That's yeah. that's crucial. That's tantamount to what a good government is. 
No, very true. And so that's where, you know, I understand the impulse to say, hey, you know, this is what we want. And if anything, the more liberal democracies there are in the world, you know, better for us. Uh, but it's just a matter of kind of how do we want to achieve that? And is the military necessarily the best way to do that? Um, you know, you, you kind of reminded me of your criticism of like, hey, you know, we're not exactly democracy. We're not making democracy look very good these days. Um, and I think it's I think we have to go back to the idea of kind of like um, we need to make sure our own house is in order before we start trying to fix other people's. And so, you know, if we're trying to like, you know, nation build uh, overseas, we got to first know how to build our own nation. Yeah. If my plumbing is broken and I'm out at your house fixing your pipes, I think Wendy would be pretty bad at that. Oh, yeah. And I, and I would be very skeptical about your ability to fix pipes. <laughs> that's you know? true. That's true. <laughs> that's like me as a financial advisor who was uh, declared bankruptcy last month yeah, giving you, you advice. Oh, yeah. If you're like a skinny <laughs> chef, I'm like, eh, I don't know if I want to eat your food, you know? And so that that's where, you know, um, I think, you know, there's definitely a lot of things wrong uh, internationally. Uh, but we need uh, for our next president someone who's willing to prioritize domestic issues more so. Um, and I think that's something where uh, Trump, you know, ran on that kind of policy, but he's definitely fallen short of it, you know, especially by, you know, putting these hawks like Bolton and Pompeo, you know, in these positions of power uh, over American foreign policy. I think that's a that's a really bone, either boneheaded move on his part. Or, you know, it reveals his true, true colors, that he actually uh, could care less about uh, what happens to America domestically. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's where, you know, I like Tulsi Gabbard's uh, uh, approach on foreign policy uh, because she's at least talking about, you know, that high-level concept of, okay, let's stop looking outward and let's look a little more inward. Um, and I think her policy about just regime change wars, um, you know, uh, you know, talking about what our interest in natural foreign foreign policy is. Our interest should be keeping the world safe, peaceful. I wouldn't say safe. Um, almost like status quo. Try to control pockets of evil. Um, and but what does that look like? True. And you that- know, and and I I have to I have to say, yeah. If you know there's a dictator out there going, you know gassing all their people or uh, putting them into hard labor camps until they die. Those type of people, those type of uh, systems, they, they want to grow. They want to grow their influence. And I think it's up to, there, there is an element to be argued that, yeah, we should contain that kind of activity. But do we go in there and uproot the people in power? I don't know. Yeah, you know, I mean, that's where I think, you know, the other instruments that are on the table, like, um, you know, economic sanctions, I think those uh, are definitely perhaps more effective, um, you know, in getting people to do what we want. Um, (laughs) And that's that's also Um, another argument there, too. Yeah, you know, because I I do think that, um, you know, we're kind of coming out of you know, World War II in some sense, uh, where it's just like, oh man, you know, we get to set the terms. Uh, we very su- we had evidence of successful regime change in both, you know, Germany and Japan. And so I think that's where a lot of that American exceptionalism and that confidence kind of came from. 
Uh, but I think we're ignoring the conditions that led to our success. Because, you know, if you look at both Germany and Japan after World War II, uh, they were both largely homogenous nations, ethnically homogenous. Uh, they were both economically developed. Uh, the population was both uh, very well educated and literate. You know, and you can't say that about anywhere else we're trying to do regime change these days. You know, um, you know Syria, for example, uh, not uh, ethnically homogenous, uh, not a very well-educated populace. Um, I mean, they did have uh, a somewhat developed economy that's more service-based versus oil-based. Uh, but, you know, places like Iraq, definitely more oil-based, uh, not ethnically homogenous, not well-educated. Afghanistan, you can say the same there. And so... Libya. Libya, that's the same thing there. And so it's something where, you know, I think, um, you know, people, they view it too simplistically of like, we as America were able to do this to other countries in the past. Why and, can't we do it and now? And a, a big, another bis- big distinction is with Germany and Japan, we actually went in there and they completely surrendered to us. So we had more exercise, uh, we had more ability to control the outcome. Sure. I mean, but you could say that about, you know, Afghanistan and Iraq to some degree. But I think the difference is as well. But it uh, wasn't it wasn't a it wasn't a uh, an agreement between the people and us. Mm-hmm. It was the agreement between the person we put in power. No, that, that that's fair. You know, I think that's one thing that the, the U.S. government was able to handle well is the transition from uh, the emperor uh, of Japan uh, to kind of the allied uh, forces. Um, and so that continuity of power, I think, is important from a psychological perspective. Um, I would also say this, you know, we're still in Germany and Japan. Like the U.S. still has military bases there. Tons. So it's something where it's like we have to also count the cost, you know, mm-hmm. where it's like this isn't, you know, mission accomplished. <laughs> you know, after like less than a year, you know, like if we're going to try <laughs> to go in here, like, you know, we're going to be in there for like the rest of our lives, you know. And so that's a huge commitment. Mm-hmm. And so it's something where I love the idea that we can eradicate all regimes that, you know, have the conditions to cultivate uh, terrorists. But, you know, that's just not realistic. I think we have to kind of cut our losses and be like, hey, when terrorism uh, emerges, we got to shut it down. But we can't change the conditions uh, in which it was able to arise. So, you know, we're, we're left playing kind of whack-a-mole a little bit. Right. Uh, but which isn't a great option, but it's probably the best option on the table. Compared to I guess Tulsi's the way she's explaining is, hey, let's just stay out of it. She's kind of calling it like it is, like, hey, uh, yeah, we want to do all this, but we're doing it all wrong. We're messing. We're we're fucking up. <laughs> we're causing more problems for ourselves than Al Qaeda. <laughs> yeah, we yeah. caused that for ourselves. We created nine eleven. No, that's true. I mean, that's where I think you know um, Tulsi grounding it in things like, okay, let's just pull out of Afghanistan. You know, what are we doing there? And then, you know, you get Ryan and the debate say, no, 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 we need some kind of presence there. This very open-ended, you know, idea. And Tulsi, I think she's challenging this kind of like wanting to have our cake and eat it too, you know, where it's like, you know, um, it kind of reminds me of like this uh, Zen Buddhist story of the duck in the bottle, where it's like, uh, you know, one day this man is raising this duck, you know, inside of a bottle and, you know, he's dropping food in there, but the duck over time grows uh, to the point where he can no longer get the duck out of the bottle. Uh, without breaking the bottle. And so and he goes around, he asks like the greatest minds everywhere in the village, like, how do I get this duck out of the bottle without breaking the bottle? And uh, no one can answer the question until he turns to a young child. And he says to the young child, child, how can I get this duck out of the bottle without breaking the bottle? And the kid says, oh, that's easy. You break the bottle. And, you know, obviously, you know, people hearing that like, oh, that's very unsatisfying. You said you weren't supposed to break the bottle. 
but the truth in that story is that only the child saw that, you know, it's impossible to take the duck out of the bottle without breaking the bottle. You know, because, yeah, maybe you can develop some kind of advanced technology to kind of widen the mouth of the bottle or to teleport the duck out of the bottle without breaking it. Uh, but the development, uh, the cost to develop those technologies far exceed that of the original bottle. Um, or maybe you can medical technology to cut up the duck, you know, take it out piece by piece, reassemble it, and it'll still be alive. But, you know, to develop that technology, you have to kill many more ducks. And so it points at this fundamental truth that, you know, we are not the player, but we're the game. Mm-hmm. You know, like we, we, our job is not to kind of like, you know, make the craftiest moves, you know, to only live on one side uh, of the spectrum, what's good and whatever. Uh, but it's like we have to, you know, embrace the, the oneness and the totality of existence. And that's right. something where, you know, when it comes to our foreign policy, yeah, you know, it'd be great if we could like end all terrorism, spread democracy everywhere and not cost any American lives or not be there forever. And it's like, yeah, you know, if you want to build a fantasy, you know, go for it. But here in reality, you know, you know, you got to pay the costs. Mm-hmm. And I just don't think we have the will or ability uh, to pay these costs. So uh, we kind of talked about how they were branding her kind of as a conservative, um, kind of unfairly in a sense, just because of her stances on foreign policy. Uh, you talked about how they um, uh, really focused on her growing up homeschooled in a very conservative background, uh, her associations with Chris, maybe not Chris Butler, but the, the religion. Oh no, she uh, she had close relationships with Chris okay, Butler okay. Uh, because her dad. Um, I mean, so some some people in the mainstream media are trying to like weave this story that um, you know Chris Butler was always interested in the intersection between politics and spirituality, and so uh, that's why you know Tulsi Gabbard's dad had close relationships with him. Uh, Tulsi Gabbard's dad was pushing a lot of like um, a homophobic agenda, you know, in in the state of Hawaii. Uh, that was, you know, that's supported by Chris Butler's views. Um, and I think even, you know, Tulsi Gabbard's first husband, her current husband, her current husband's uh, mother, so her mother-in-law, all are kind of working for a campaign. And so it's kind of like, a, it's, it's like a close-knit community. Um, and so there's the idea that, like, um, the analog that some of the mainstream media is using is that, you know, Tulsi is Chris Butler's, like, protege that, you know, uh, just like if he was, like, a music teacher, like, now he's finally got a star protege on the world stage or whatever. Right. Um, and I think, you know, it's... But to some degree, some of it's true because she is lending, uh, you know, credibility to, you know, his, uh, his kind of movement or whatever. Um, but I do think that, you know, she has kind of since distanced herself from it. Uh, I mean, we've already talked about the whole, like, you know, uh, uh, the fact that, you know, um, like Jerry Falwell and et cetera. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, but when it comes to the media's, um, you know, coverage of Tulsi, I think, you know, it's important to kind of trace, uh, you know, her political history. Mm-hmm. So, you know, she was elected to Hawaii's House of Representatives at 21, uh, you know, becoming the youngest woman ever to be elected state legislator. Um and then she was uh, elected to the at house. Twenty one. Twenty one. Pretty fucking amazing, dude. Oh yeah, yeah. But you know, she came from a family whose background was in politics, and so it's not completely, you know, unexpected. It, um, not not that it's completely unexpected, but just anybody going, oh, I'm going to vote for a twenty one year old. It's true. I mean, yeah, that must take a lot of good convincing, and that she was uh, pretty well qualified for the job. 
Um, I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't know how well qualified any twenty-one year old. That's is. true. <laughs> but, but I do think that you know, proficient in Word doc, Excel. <laughs> That's what you need to put on on those resumes. <laughs> Um, <laughs> yeah, I'm very proficient in the Microsoft Word uh, suite. <laughs> <laughs> Knows how um, to use Outlook. <laughs> this all this bullshit thing on a resume. <laughs> no, I mean that was on my resume when I was. Oh no, one, heck you know? yeah, heck um, yeah. I was uh, my resume was a two pager. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, but you know, she was uh, you know elected to the House of Representatives in 2012 uh, from Hawaii. So I think she was. Maybe the young was she the youngest woman? Uh, you know, at thirty, at what thirty? How old was she? She's thirty-seven now, so that would make it. She was like thirty. Thirty. Okay, so I mean, I don't know if she was the youngest woman, but she was the first woman uh, who has served in the military. Uh, true, and also the first, I think, Hindu. I want to say there's a lot of qualifiers. Mm. Yeah, you know. And so, but as a result, though, she was seen as a rising star. You know, she was young, she was attractive, she was multicultural, she was a war veteran uh, who voted left but sounded credible when it came to issues of national security. And so, you know, you can see that she was even nominated as like vice chair of the Democratic um, National Committee. And, um, and she was decorated as a military uh, person. Oh, yeah. And so you can see this in like the very favorable coverage of her. Like if you look at headlines, um, you know, early on, it's like uh, Tulsi Gabbard shows Bobby Jindal. It's cool to be Hindu or, you know, a small sign of progress. A congresswoman is working it out with the guys, you know, and, and that's about like her working, like literally working out at a gym with like Republicans. Oh, God. And so but, you know, these kind of fluff pieces, you can see that, hey, you know, the establishment sees her as someone they want to invest in. But it all began to start to go south uh, because she made some kind of, uh, quote unquote, unwise political moves, uh, first of which was being um, criticizing Obama for Obama not using the term radical Islam. Uh, and so, you know, that's where people on the right, like Fox News, they really kind of jumped on this opportunity to show division in the Democratic Party. And, you know, this was only exacerbated you know, during the 2016 elections, where as vice chair, she actually ended up resigning oh, yeah. uh, to support Bernie Sanders. Uh, and I think she had really good reasons, you know, because what's interesting is that, um, you know, Bernie Sanders. So one, she began arguing with the, the president, um, uh, Debbie Wasserman Schultz, uh, demanding that there be more than six debates uh, because, you know, Schultz was trying to benefit Clinton because Clinton, it, the common wisdom was that uh, because Clinton was more well-known, that the less debates there were, uh, the less opportunity for people to find out about Bernie Sanders, and so better for Clinton. Um, I mean, whether she was actually trying to back Clinton or whether she had the idea of like, well, we just want to coalesce around this candidate as quickly as possible. I'm not sure what her motives are. Uh, but the result was she was really trying to like, you know, push out Bernie. And this was e seen even more clearly when it came to uh, the allocation of Hawaii's delegates, you know, because Bernie actually won 70 percent of the vote during the primary. And yet most of the delegates, uh, delegates ended up going to Clinton. I heard people were lining, the superdelegates were lining up to vote for Clinton when no, they opened, it up, opened up the voting. No, exactly. Like and they were literally lining up at 8 a.m. just to vote for her. No, exactly. Because, you know, what incentivizes superdelegates is not following uh, the will of the people, but it's their own, you know, um, you know, 
ambition and advancement within the party. So, it's, yeah, that's what I said. I, I was thinking you're very generous to uh, Debbie Washerman, so Schultz. Well, analysis. you know, she, <laughs> well, you know, I'm trying to be impartial, but, you know, but at the end of the day, there's some things that, you know, you, you got to call a spade a spade. Like, for example, mm-hmm. after uh, Wasserman Schultz, uh, you know, was resigned, uh, resigned from the party, guess who hired her immediately? You know, the Clinton As campaign. Into the campaign. And also it was bec- the reason why she resigned was there was an email saying, oh, how do we give Bernie more time? And she said something to the effect of over my dead body, you know. Um, so obviously, you know, putting their weight on, on the scale for Clinton a lot more than Bernie. No, true. And they try to justify it by, you know, even the existence of superdelegates are justified by this like, oh, well, just in case the American public chooses someone that isn't going to be good for the country, we know better. And it's like that's so disrespectful, you know, to the American public. You know, like what, you know, what are even the qualifications to become a superdelegate? Mm-hmm. You know, so I, I think... Um, you know, that shows I think there's a lot of cronyism. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think the fact that Tulsi Gabbard was willing to risk her political career to stand up against this, I think that shows that she's somewhat of character. Um, and to be vice chair exactly. of DNC, that's a lot of, uh, a, a lot of influence that you can have. Oh, yeah. And she's still young and she should, you know, most people in her position would be thinking about, you know, her future in the party. Uh, but, you know, she pulled these moves like calling out President Obama, not using the term radical Islam, like, uh, you know, um, you know, resigning as vice chair to support Bernie Sanders. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can't say that she's acting out of self-interest in either one of those cases. You know, that shows that she's acting out of a genuine conviction. Uh, and although those were politically unwise moves to make, uh, I, I think that uh, buoys, you know, the argument that she is uh, an authentic candidate. And also doesn't accept PAC money. Just like uh, Andrew Yang. Oh, yeah, true. And, you know, Bernie Sanders was the first to kind of start that. And I think that's a welcome change to see, you know. So, um, you know, I think she has demonstrated that, you know, she is a person of integrity. Uh, and I even think her handling of, you know, the her kind of complicated past with um, the LGBT, you know, issues. You know, she shared that, you know, she owned it. Yes. You know, I grew up in a very socially conservative household. And when I was younger, I did kind of hold on to these beliefs. But it was during her time in serving in Iraq where she was able to experience, you know, the prejudice against women that was uh, religiously motivated, uh, you know, by, um, you know, Islam there, uh, that she realized that, you know, the state uh, shouldn't be involved in, like, moral issues, you know, the, you know, shouldn't be aligned with any kind of, you know, religious ideas, you know, because this is what it actually looks like. And so I think, you know, given her age and given her experience, I think that's a credible explanation for her change in policy uh, uh, positions when it comes to uh, the LGBTQ, um, you know, uh, you know, issues. And also now, even if you look at her now, you know, she uh, has given been given 100 percent of her voting record, has been endorsed by the Human Rights Campaign, the largest uh, LGBT lobby organization in the country. Uh, she's also received a hundred percent rating for her voting record in favor of LGBT uh, legislation. And she is a member of the LGBT equality caucus in the house. Mm -hmm. And so that's why I think um, the mainstream media's attacks on her as being like anti-gay are disingenuous, uh, are not true. Um, And so, you know, that's where that then begs the question, you know, why is the mainstream media, you know, trying to attack her for her faith tradition? Why are they trying to attack her for her views on LGBT uh, issues? And that points to? 
the military industrial complex. There you go. You know, because she's <laughs> because uh, you know these uh, news news out, uh, outlets. What is more profitable than reporting on the war? Yeah, I mean that's definitely one part of it. Um, the other part of it is the fact that you know uh, these uh, defense contractors. I mean, they earn incredible sums of money. Like we spend uh, close to like. trillion a year, you know, on uh, our military. I mean, the actual budget is, what, $700 billion. But then if you add on veteran affairs, if you add on And there's a lot of off-budget items as well. Exactly. You know, like, and that budget is supposed to be used for, like, uh, disaster relief as well. But guess what it instead is used for? To fund these endless wars. And no one wants to talk about it because everyone is in the pockets of these lobbyists. You know, but Tulsi is the only person who, you know, to great detriment to her own political career uh, to address these issues. I mean, even in the debates, you know, she snuck in a remark calling out the Saudis and our support of the Saudis. Ooh. Uh, so one more thing I want to mention about um, Tulsi was um, she is a she she was in the uh, Hawaiian National Guard. Uh, so and she served two tours um, and uh you know, she 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 mentioned she sees the she sees firsthand the cost of war. You know, you have these uh, politicians who are saying, "Hey, let's go to war," but almost none of them has ever been to war or ever served in the military. Um, and at the same time, they're probably not serving the front lines, so they don't know that kind of uh, uh, issues. Um, but what I found interesting was um, was Tulsi. She was actually the congresswoman, and she actually uh, gave up her seat to go serve, uh, to actually go abroad and served. And I just felt like that really speaks to her uh, uh, her conviction in, in things and that she was not politically ambitious. She felt like serving, serving in her military capacity was more important than winning her congress seat back. Yeah, no, and I think that goes back to, you know, a, a common refrain that, you know, we keep going back to is her authenticity and also her willingness to personally bear the cost uh, of her choices. And I think that uh, responsibility that she's demonstrating, I think, is something that is largely absent from many of the other candidates. Um, and so I, I think it lends her a special credibility. Mm-hmm. I agree. Um, you know, but, you know, speaking about her time in Congress, um, you know, she her legislative record, you know, <laughs> really just amounts to one kind of anodyne, you know, bipartisan bill on veteran affairs. Uh, she's actually constantly introducing more so like messaging bills, uh, you know, non-committee specific kind of hopeless pieces of legislation. Uh, things like uh, eliminate the dependence on fossil fuels by 2035, um, you know, end the federal marijuana prohibition. Um, requiring the president to ask Congress before going to war. Um, she did back Sheldon Adelson's uh, idea to end internet gambling. Um, mm, a resolution. I'm sub- against that. <laughs> <laughs> you do love gambling, Jack. Oh, yes. I'm Chinese. So what can I say? Um, but I think, you know, uh, you know, these messaging bills, you know, are actually employed by everyone, uh, Democrats, Republicans alike, you know, Republicans do stupid ones like repealing crucial parts of the uh, health care reform law, like repealing the tax on companies that sell uh, more than five million dollars on um, medical devices. And so, you know, um, 
you know, she's kind of playing the game in that sense, as does everyone. Uh, but I think what she is choosing to kind of message with these bills, uh, I, I think is important. I think it's uh, definitely, especially the ones on the Stop Arming Terrorists Act, you know, and that prohibits the U.S. government from funding, uh, uh, giving any assistance to al-Qaeda, um, to the Islamic State, uh, or to countries supporting these organizations. And it's like one of those things where it's like, why is this just a messenger bill? Why can't this be a real bill? Why are only 14 of the 435 United States Congress uh, members uh, supporting this bill? The military-industrial complex. There you go. You know, because what this does is this essentially says we're going to stop funding the opposition in Syria. You know, and, uh, you know, it's not that we're giving them money. We're giving our defense contractors money, you know, for weapons that they then give to them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so... You know, and I think that's a new one. We train their troops. Exactly. You know, so it's something where, um, you know, when it comes to an issue like Syria, it is a little more complicated. You know, Assad, um, you know, has, he he has, his administration has led to the death of over uh, 500,000 Syrians. And and so, you know, and there is uh, some evidence of um, his use of chemical weapons, although it is a little dubious, you know, um, uh, General Mattis in 2018 said the U.S. had government had no proof of him ever using uh, chemical weapons. So, you know, and, and I say that because not that chemical weapons weren't used. It's clear that they were used. But, um, you know, there is a theory that it actually was the rebels who used it uh, in an attempt to uh, frame the Assad government. Um, you know, because this this idea of legitimacy uh, is becoming uh, more and more top of mind when it comes to how people view wars. Because you can use that as a political reason to go to war. Exactly. You know, Obama's famous red line, you know, because um, if you think about it, why would Assad use chemical weapons where they were used? You know, like uh, if he's, you they know. gain no tactical advantage for exactly. him. Exactly. In fact, it's a disadvantage. And so, and why are there not a single dead uh you know, a uh, rebel soldier there, why is it mostly like civilians, women, and children? You know, mm-hmm. so I, I think there, it, it is credible to think that some of these could, some of this could be a setup. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, I think with Trump, he didn't, he, he pledged no military action against uh, Syria, but as soon as he got word that there was chemical weapons used, uh, he sent like 146 Tomahawk missiles in there. Oh, yeah, there you go. And so that's something where, you know, um, we have to be a little skeptical, you know, about these reports. Uh, I mean, don't get me wrong. Uh, you know, what's happening in Syria is a humanitarian crisis. Um, you know, you know, it, it's unfortunate, you know, that, um, you know, it's happening. But I think the larger question goes, you know, what can we do about it? You know, and also, why are we there? What are we there for? If we're going to say, yeah, we're there for a humanitarian crisis, we're trying to help the people, um, there are a lot of other countries that need our help. No, very true. Why Syria? Oh, yeah, because, you know, there is the Rodinga, you know, um, genocide that's happening in Myanmar. Mm-hmm. Uh, and why is there no calls for us to, you know, arm the rebels there? You know, so I, I think uh, I think that's revealing that, you know, perhaps there's an other uh, considerations uh, at play here. 
Uh, and so I think it's important to kind of unpack what those It's more be. like, yeah, we have to, use, if we're going to give reasons, we have to be honest with ourselves. No, very true. You know, um, yeah, because if we're going to, you know, try to say it's for humanitarian reasons, then we need to be consistent across the board. Then we need to be in Sudan. We need to be in Myanmar. Um, you know, we need to be in Nigeria. You know, we so need to be in Yemen. We need, we need to, be, to in be in Venezuela. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> There's a lot of places we need to be. No, very true. <laughs> if we run on that. Yeah, no, very, very true. And so it's something where, you know, I think it's not just having good values, but having the skills in which to make these values a reality. Uh, mm-hmm. That is something that, uh, you know, uh, we as a country need to, you know, reflect on. And so when it comes to this issue of Syria, uh, I think, you know, going back to the media's representation of Tulsi Gabbard, uh, I think it's been very unfair. You know, I, I think the point, the fact that she met with Assad and that she is opposing American intervention there, I think it's painting, you know, the media is trying to paint her as uh, someone who is, what, pro-Assad? Yes, sim- uh, an uh, Assad-sympathetic, a dictator-sympathetic person. Yeah, which is, you know, I think definitely conflating, uh, you know, the issue. I think, you know, that's like saying anyone who opposes war against North Korea is a Kim Jong-un, you know, sympathizer. And that's not true at all. Like, there's many and reasons. Trump is a Kim Jong-un sympathizer. Well. He, tr- he stepped over. <laughs> <laughs> he went to the other side. <laughs> but, I, but I think what it is is that, you know, one, uh, you know, we need uh, our government to be, like, better informed, you know, about what's happening over there. So I think her going over there and seeing firsthand... Uh, you know, what's going on. She didn't just meet with Assad. She met with uh, the rebel opposition as well. Uh, And so that's something where... No, and and, and I think I I kind of bring that up because uh, with the Trump and Kim Jong-un thing is uh, the Democratic Party, it's almost as soon as you have an association with a dictator of some sort, uh, oh, you're a sympathizer. You agree with everything they want, they, they, they do. Uh, and it's very, uh, and I think that's that's the kind of a trap that Tulsi Gabbard got, got into. Once she met with him, that just opened it up for everybody to attack her. No, that's true. And, you know, especially on like, like they would say, oh, but she did it. She went rogue. She didn't even let anyone know. But that's not true at all. You know, she let the... She debrief, debriefed. It, it was an opportunity that came up, but she debriefed everybody. And she... Uh, spent money out of her own pocket to cover that portion of the trip. Oh, yeah. And she also let the uh, House, uh, House Ethics Committee know a month in advance about the trip. So it's actually absolutely not true that she didn't let anyone know. Uh, and so I think, you know, the peddling of these lies is pointing to, you know, why are there forces in our in our government that want us involved in Syria? Um, and I think, you know, because what's interesting is that even Nobel Peace Laureate uh, Marianne McGuire uh, has made multiple trips to Syria and agrees that the U.S. support for regime change is contributing to the deaths of hundreds of thousands and claimed that the uh, and claimed that if the efforts are successful, it can lead to a takeover by armed religious driven fanatics. And so as much as we want to help the situation, our actions are actually making it worse. Um. And that's also the thing is when I when I talk about how the left is branding her as conservative or something like that or an Assad sympathizer, as soon as she came back, she was interviewed by Wolf Blitzer from CNN. Mm. And Wolf went on at her about how uh, she, you know, who do you think she should, uh, do you think it's okay for Assad 
to uh, to gas his people like that. He men- he mentions that question multiple times and may try to get her to fall into that trap of saying, yeah, because I don't support regime change wars. That means I support Assad, which means I support dictators gassing their people. Oh, yeah, and, and you know, that like stupid argument can be used uh, for the Iraq war too. Oh, because you were against the Iraq invasion, you're pro Saddam Hussein. And it's- That's what happened mm-hmm. during that time. You know, you're an un, you're an un-American. No, very true. And we all know how that ended up, you know? So I think that's something where I would hope that we can learn our lessons and, you know, we can look past the smear campaign. So, uh, second so episode, Jack, second episode, almost in the bag. Um, you know, I really wish we, you know, we had a lot more to, you know, prepare to want to talk about, but, um, you know, time, things like that. Yeah. And also just, I think just the nature of us, uh, just talking about things, uh, it's just very natural for us to go into so many topics and there's a lot of fertile ground. No, that's true. So that's why, you know, you as viewers, you as listeners, uh, if there's something that you want us to talk more about, something that you don't want us to talk about. Uh, feel free to chime in on something the you think i um uh, i made an idiotic uh comment on or you want us to elaborate more on oh yeah because you know we'll be very upfront we're not experts you know we're just two normal guys sitting here in los angeles um you know just kind of giving our perspectives on yeah, issues that matter we we are informed but we're not informed about everything i mean there's definitely there's stuff that we have no idea about or um we're just not looking into Oh, yeah. So definitely, you know, feel free to, you know, share share your thoughts. Uh, you know, one issue that I did wish we, uh, you know, got on, but maybe we can get on this bonus section, Pimplegate. <laughs> By the way, if you work for NBC, let us know. <laughs> we want to ask you some questions. Actually, Jack, maybe first explain what, what is Pimplegate. So it's, it's really odd. It's really odd. I'm not sure what it is, but for some reason, NBC put a pimple on her, on, on, uh, on her chin. Oh. Uh, during the debate, and then in another part of the debate, you don't see that pimple anymore. True. Even in photographs from the debate, there was no pimple. But there was a pimple for a good, like, uh, whenever she was talking, that that good couple of minutes. Oh, yeah. You know what? Uh, in the description, we will put a link to the video. So it don't take our word for it. The video exists. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the beauty of the internet. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And so- it's there. It really, it's, you can see it. <laughs> and it's just the oddest thing. So why do you think they would do something like oh, that? Oh, gosh. I mean, to blemish her. <laughs> blemish her reputation or her stance on things. Uh, you know, just, I mean, if I'm going to be generous, it was a mistake. There was a Snapchat filter that they added, which is a weird filter to add a blemish on. But Yeah, I, I didn't even know they could do that on live television. Oh, uh, did you hear about the uh, the guy in Pakistan? Oh, no, what he was uh, talking about uh, he live streamed. Um, uh, he was a government official who live streamed. Uh, I'm not sure foreign policy or some kind of dom- domestic policy. And they had a cat filter on the whole time. They had to cut, a, cut it off because they were like, what the hell are you doing? He had this cat filter on his face the whole time. Just this Pakistani guard guy looking super serious, talking about super serious national matters with a fucking cat filter. <laughs> And I, 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 I don't know if that's the case. There's just so many weird things about N- this NBC debate. No, very true. I mean, you know what's interesting, though? If we do take it, you know, the conspiracy angle, um, you know, one of uh, 
part of Tulsa Gabbard's draw is her appearance. You know, she she's a you know fairly attractive woman. Uh, she's no AOC, but you know. <laughs> <laughs> and let the comments come in. <laughs> Uh-oh. Um, and so, hey, you know, like uh, you know, but what what it is is that. Um, it's kind of unfair that women get judged more mm-hmm. so by their appearance. Mm-hmm. You know, no one really talks about the way men are dressed. But then, you know, a Hillary, Melania, you know, they, it's always, you know, how they're dressed is like, you know, the news issue. I mean, it's on the most emailed list of articles from the New York Times. Exactly. And so that bias definitely exists. So in some ways, you know, perhaps it was a very cynical move on uh, the powers that be on NBC's part. So, you know what? Yeah, let's make her look a little more ugly, you know, by the small blemish. I mean, it's really silly. You know, but at the same time, I wouldn't necessarily put it past them. Right. Um, you know, it kind of reminds me of the topic of like deep fakes. You know, it, perhaps this is like just the beginning. You know, um, are you familiar with the idea of deep fakes? One explain. They're making. They, they look real. <laughs> no, they are. You know. So it's uh, it's kind of like your Snapchat filter. You know, you know that one uh, one period where you can swap faces. Mm. It's kind of like that, but instead, it's using your face. Um, and having you you say certain things and your face moves with it, um, and it looks like and it makes it appear like and it very very much looks real that that person is speaking. Uh, so there, I think the 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 of course everybody uses it for porn, you know. So one of the most the first time I heard about it was Gal Gadot in porn. Huh. And I was like, what? Gal Gadot in porn? No way. She's a mom. And, and I mean, if you just knew that that wasn't her. Uh, and then you looked, watched the video, and it, it looked like her. It was, mm. it was, and then you look into carefully and people, like the head motion is always a little weird. So when Wendy was seeing you do this research. Uh, she didn't see that <laughs> part. That was, uh, that was, that was classified research. Uh, <laughs> no, but honestly, it's, it, 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 it piques your curiosity. You're like, oh, what's going on? And um, so they were able to make uh, Jordan Peele speak like Obama, hmm. even though he does a good impression of Obama, but he makes him look like he speaks as Obama. Hey, you know, there's actually a historical precedent for this. Uh, I think one of, uh, I think Ronald Reagan was a victim of this, where they, they you know, he, he gives so many speeches, but someone like kind of snippeted like all these, uh, you know, parts of different speeches, compiled it to one to make him sound like he's saying something he uh, he, he didn't say. Uh, or um, that one guy who made Nancy Pelosi look like she was drunk. Oh, I, I don't That know was another that deep fake where he basically, all he did was just for fun. He just made um Anytime Nancy Pelosi spoke, he just slowed it down enough Hmm. to still make it look like it was going at normal speed, but making her look like her words were slurred. Hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. No, I mean like that. That it's it, we're in a brave new world, you know. Because um, right now the technology of deep fakes is a little limiting. Where, you know, they can get it pretty close to reality, but not quite there. Um, same thing was kind of like robotics. Like I was watching this movie uh, Samsara. I don't know if you've seen that one, uh, but there's this one part where it's showing like these, I guess, Japanese robots, and it was like creepy, you know, because it looks so close to a human being, but just slightly off. Uh, they call this the uncanny valley, you know, because you're filled with that uncanny feeling, and it's literally, a, it's a valley between you, uh, between reality, a real human being, and a fake one. Mm-hmm. Um, that's actually one reason why, uh, you know, the, the, they're developing sex robots, but then... <laughs> They're developing not to be like super realistic. They're developing it to be um, slightly off, almost like cartoonish, like hentai, uh-huh. mm-hmm. uh, because they realize if they try to make it 
too realistic, it would just become creepy, you know? And so by keeping it a little fake, it's like, okay, I'm just kind of, I'm a, you know, I just like having sex with robots. I'm not trying to pretend like this is like a real human being. Wait, I thought they're always trying to make it real, just like they make porn real. Uh, Porn's well, based on reality, right? Uh, <laughs> right. Well, <laughs> I mean, a bunch of black guys just show up, and the girl's always willing, right? <laughs> but I mean, really, it's uh, with these uh, deep fakes. You know, I, 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 I like to say after I thought about this. I think blockchain is actually going to be able to solve this. What do you mean? Uh, just, you know, anytime there's a person's recording, you you scan your personal key to authenticate mm. it, you know? Like, hey, yeah, Obama spoke. Boom, he has a key that authenticates this video. Oh, you know, that's interesting, you know, because you're right. Because if you put it on the blockchain, you know, uh, all these different nodes, you know, are verifying it. So it's very, very, very difficult to, to kind of hack. Um I've also heard kind of a low-tech solution for this where as deepfakes become more popular, then like uh, to your friends, like every month you have to like give some kind of passcode, be like, hey, Jack, you know, just in case you see me saying some crazy shit or doing something ridiculous, you know, if I ever like call you, then just know like the, the password is like bazooka gum, you know, like, and, you know, if I, if, if, I, if I start sounding weird, you know, because what's interesting is that how they can use deep fakes is for uh, ransom. Like, you uh, know, someone calling yeah. you, oh. you know, from a mass number that looks like my number using my, like a, 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 a representation sending of my you voice. a video chat. Oh yeah. And I'm like, Jack, the terrorists have me, you know, wire $50,000 to this address, you know, in Bitcoin. You or, know? or I'm in UK right now and I need you to buy me a gift certificate, <laughs> a gift oh, yeah. card no, from no, 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 really. Amazon. <laughs> really? You know, like that? <laughs> You know, they're already kind of doing that for email. I'm a, I'm a Nigerian prince. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I need to get this mm-hmm. money out. You know, and so I think the deep fakes are actually going to start impacting like our day-to-day lives. Like mm-hmm. they'll be deep faking like normal people. Uh, and a lot of people are going to fall for it. Like in Taiwan, there was a period of time where um, they would call you and say, hey, we have your son. Hmm. And then it, they'll give, they'll let a little boy say something like, oh, mom, help me. And he'll take it right back. So it's short enough for you to not be able to really recognize. But then it's like a, a young kid. So you just know it's a young kid. Mm. And they're calling you mommy. And you're like, oh, what the fuck? You know, what's going on? And where do I send the money? Hmm. Um, yeah. So I, I but, but that password thing, <laughs> that's going to be a lot of work, man. <laughs> no, that's true. Yeah. You got to be clever and think of like uh, a new unique password every month. <laughs> Well, thank you for listening to another episode of Taj Tell. If you like what you heard, go ahead and just smash that subscribe button. Or give us a like, a thumbs up, anything to help. And make sure you turn on the notifications. Five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. <laughs> I don't know what the ratings are. Or Google. <laughs>